Welcome to Wappy Hour, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Today, our guest at Wappy Hour is Tish Harrison-Warren. Many of you may know Tish because she's an author at The Well, and then she's also an author in the wider world now with her first book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. And we're thrilled to have Tish on the call with us today, interviewing her and asking her some questions. Tish, thanks for your willingness to be on the podcast, particularly since this was sort of your dream baby when you were on our team. So it's kind of fun to be able to interview you on the podcast that you thought about starting. So Yeah, and never successfully started. But I, I mean, I feel like WAP is like my home base. I, the well is where... I started as a writer. The well is where I discovered I was a writer because I didn't know. And it's where I put out my first pieces. Yeah, it feels, and you know, I mean, I was on staff with University uh, GFM for eight years, but then I was on staff for WAP at the last bit of that. So, yeah, I miss it. I miss it. It's home. Yeah. And when, so this last year when I put out a piece that about, really personal piece about the loss of our two children and the death of my father. I wanted, I wanted to put it out at the well. Cause I was like, I just want to put it in a place that feels like family. Yeah. And we're always thrilled to have whatever you want to write about. We're thrilled to have, <laughs> it, have it at the well. So you, you mentioned that you were on staff for a while and then you left ministry in the academic setting and now you're ministry in a local parish setting and I'm sure there are some crossovers but I'm also curious to know what the differences are and what you appreciate about each of those ministry spaces or opportunities. Great that's a great question I mean our church I'll say has a lot it's near uh, Carnegie Mellon University and also um, Pitt so uh, University of Pittsburgh. So, and a few other, this Chatham University, there's, there's, it's kind of where we sit is really close to a lot of the universities. So we have, I still, we still have a lot of academics and grad students in our congregation. Mm-hmm. So, which is just essential. I mean, I think that we, that's just part of our calling is to that world. And my husband has a PhD and uh he's likely to quote, he's more likely to quote, you know, Origen or Athanasius or St. Basil in a sermon than he is to make a football reference. So we need people (laughs) that like appreciate his hyper intellectualism. So in terms of what's the same and different, I mean, the rhythm of life is really different, right? Mm. When we were doing academic ministry, the summers were always really slow because a lot of people would go. Beginning of the semesters were always super busy. And then you just you know, during finals, it's funny, you almost never saw students, but the students you saw were always in crisis. It was just a crisis time. So your life really follows the school calendar, whereas our life now very much follows the liturgical calendar. It did before, but way more now. A lot of our parishioners work nine to five. And so we do a lot more at night and weekends where it was students, even with our science students, uh, most of them usually could meet during the day. 
So there's a lot of flexibility. So rhythm is a little different, but there's, I mean, a huge difference is just, you know, I work with 70 year olds now and new moms and 10 year olds and, you know, everyone that we kind of worked with generally was between kind of 20 and 30, older than 20, but let's say 22 to 35, kind of that range. And now we just have uh, every age and stage, which is really cool, but different. I mean, I really haven't worked very much with folks that were um, substantially older than me, really ever in ministry. So this is, that's new and I like it and, but it's really different, you know? And so that's been different. Some of the questions that come up are different. There's less who should I marry? What should I do with my life? Although you still get that quite a lot, but uh, a lot of these folks, but now it's, how do I stay married? (laughs) 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 What do I do with my life? (laughs) Still the same question, but I preach a lot more. So that's different. I didn't Uh preach hardly ever when I was in campus ministry and now I preach a lot, Uh, but I miss, I really do miss campus. I loved working on a university campus. And I still love, I still, we have a young adults ministry, which mostly sort of folks right out of college, that kind of emerging adult Mm -hmm. age group. And I still love getting to hang out with them and have had them over to our house for some parties and we pray Compline together at our church every so often. So it's been a joy kind of being involved in that. I still um, really love being around folks with that age group. The other thing I'll say that I found is there's more ideological and political diversity. Our church is really runs the gamut. It's kind of far right to far left and everything in between, you know, very moderate as well. So, and up and down and left and right and political philosophies you've never heard of. And so everyone's kind of it's really, it's really an ideologically diverse space, which there's very few left. And that I saw less of that in the academy. Most of the grad students we worked with, well, there was political diversity, but but not, I don't, there wasn't the range that I see in the local parish. We just kind of get it all. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, as you are there longer, if you'll respond or react to the in the university it's so transitory right you have MBA students for 18 months or you Mm -hmm. know you've got a philosophy PhD you might have them for eight years but uh, Mm -hmm. but within a parish ministry people are just there yeah so there's a there's a different dynamic there in terms of how you build relationships and relationships over time and it'd be interesting to see how you how how you respond to that as you're there a little bit longer yeah that's true we're so new i mean we've been we've been there a year more or less it's a little over a year but i wasn't working at first because of a crisis family crisis so that is different it's interesting because we have a mix because because we do have so many grad students and folks that are here for their job promotion or whatever, we do fairly frequently have turnover and have students leave. I've already had, you know, one person who I just love to, uh, you know, finish school and is now in DC. So, but then we also have like one of my, one, just this delightful man in our parish. He is, I don't know how old he is. He's, he's at least, he's got to be at least in his upper seventies, if not 
older, but he has more energy than I do. I mean, he's the most energetic man. He was born in this parish. He was baptized in this parish. Oh, wow. He's been there for decades and decades and 70 years. So we have several folks like that who've been, I mean, the church is about 130 years old. So there's just a, a stat, there's a rootedness to it, which is also in some ways is different than campus ministry because both of the chapters I worked with were one we planted and one was fairly new. And at the same time, we were working with a church plant in Austin. So everything we did was like building it while we were flying it. Everything was making it up as we went along. And now everything, I mean, everything has like a long tradition in our church. So there's a lot of beauty in that. Yeah. It's tricky. It's trickier to change things. Uh, right. But, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so you moved across the country to start this new, this new thing, right? And you've already mentioned that you had a really horrible, difficult first year with a lot of personal loss. Uh, in addition to just the loss of your former life in Austin, perhaps it's hard to think about the move or transition without the added weight of these extra things. But our audience at the well has a number that are in that life age stage thing where new beginnings are pretty frequent. And so I'm just curious what you're learning about transitions, either for yourself personally or for your family. Mm -hmm. Has it been hard to start over? What's been helpful what hasn't been helpful? <laughs> what are some things maybe you'd do differently if you had to do it all over again? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'll say I uh, it has been a hard transition because of life stuff, which is inseparable. But also, I mean, we've moved, we've been married 14 years, uh, less than. We've been married 13 years and we've lived in... I think five states. So we've moved a lot. Yeah. And we've moved almost every three years. So we stayed in Nashville a little bit longer, but we've moved a ton. And so the starting over thing is something that I, this is not my first rodeo with starting over. So I don't like moving. Some people love it and it's a great new adventure and you get new friends and new people and explore new places. And, um, I maybe was slightly more like that when I was younger, but not, I, I really like rooted relationships. So my mom is going to die less than a mile from where she was born. Like where she lives now, where she's retired is her hometown. So we, we are people of deep roots and, my whole family has been is there as in Texas and has been for seven generations. We don't like I don't like change very much, and it's because I really uh, connect with I I get deep friendships in places, and so it's always horrible to to leave. Mm-hmm. Just the reconnecting and then leaving part is just awful for me. Uh, I also really connected to place. I mean. I wrote this book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, and partly I think because I, my ordinary life, my daily life uh, matters an enormous amount. I find a lot of meaning there. So moving more than almost anything else just throws your ordinary completely out of the window and you have to build it again from scratch in a right. lot of ways. It's been really difficult. And if I, if we, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to move again, 
If not, that is fine. I've told my husband that if we move, we will not move without him signing a contract that we will stay in that place for at least 15 years and we will have it notarized. (laughs) uh, I am so over moving. So in terms of like advice, it comes out of like a giant, not just this move, but lots of moves. I will say expect the first year to be hard. It's just going to be hard when you're in a new place. And if not, then great. That's gravy. That's icing on the cake. But I think it takes about a year and a half to two years to arrive at a place to even really get there. The first year you're just spending grieving what you've left. And it's not until about a year and a half, two years that you start to even kind of, I'm saying this for me, but I've honestly seen this in multiple people, multiple students even now, that it almost takes a year and a half, two years to sort of emotionally come out of kind of your little... uh, I'm thinking of like a little chipmunk that's like people like coming out of his little hole in the spring, like to come out of like the deep hibernation of grief and to sort of start looking around and exploring this new place. So give yourself time. And if you're only there for a year, you know, then that's a different dynamic because it's like camp, right? And you're not expecting to stay here, but any, but a move where it's going to be, you know, like a, a PhD program that's going to be five years or so or any kind of move I think that's going to be more than maybe two years it almost takes two years to kind of like get there I think so be really gentle on yourself and we were talking about self-care earlier find healthy ways of self-care because there's going to be grief there's just inevitably going to be grief the other thing I think, you know, being rooted in a church has been incredibly helpful. And especially because we were in crisis so quickly, we really couldn't have done it without the church body coming around us. So you can find a church really quickly. And I know I know it takes time and sometimes you have to look around, but don't look around for any longer than you need to, really. I think rooting in a church is a great, great thing. And then just know that it takes a while to figure out who your people are going to be. Mm-hmm. who like your crew is that just kind of takes a while and is a process and you have to lean into the process that the process is sort of part of it part of the way that this is growing you and shaping you and you're never the thing you love about the place you're coming from is just not going to be able to be replaced people aren't replaceable places aren't replaceable what i found is if you loved this particular hike, or if you love this particular restaurant, you're not going to be able to find a restaurant to replace that restaurant you loved or to replace that hike you loved or to replace that friend you loved. You have to find uh, completely new things you love. Complete, yes. it, it's, it's going to be a, just a completely different experience. And at some point you have to just, you, you, it's completely self-defeating to try to compare a place to place and and so you just discover what you love about another place. And it inevitably, I think I you become a little bit of a different person every place you go. Not not in a two-faced way. I mean, I'm a I'm certainly recognizable. I keep in touch with my with some of my good friends I keep in touch with. So there's certainly continuity, but I think place changes us. And so inevitably the thing you're gonna discover things you love and there's gonna be things that you do less of. And that's just part of it. It's just being an embodied in a place is going to change what you do and who you are in ways. So can you tell me one thing you love about Pittsburgh? Yeah. Well, one thing I love, it's summertime right now. And 
summer in Pittsburgh is like where it's at. I mean, it's a completely different city in the summer than in the winter. In the winter, everyone seems depressed. <laughs> They're very dour. It's very dark. And then it becomes summer and it's like the whole city goes nuts. I mean, they are so, it's this, everyone is out and so happy and so chill. And it's, it's so like mellow and fun all summer. So one of the things I really love is our house is walking distance from a big park, which we didn't have before. I have hiking trails that I can just get out and go to. And they're, it's beautiful. Uh, Pittsburgh is, has lots of hiking, lots of really kind of hilly and mountainous and craggy and has tons of green space. And so I've never had this much green space this close to my house. So that's been really, really yeah, fun. That's fun. That's great. Yeah. Well, WAP started a book club this past fall, and we read two books about vocation. We read Stephen Garber's Visions of Vocation, and then we read Mary Poplin's Finding Calcutta. And then we also read several Dorothy Sayers essays, including Why Work? Um, So we have this kind of work vocation theme going that we've been looking at for the year. Mary Poplin suggests in her book that our crises or our grievings often help initiate or clarify our calling. Mm, That's interesting. or Or she says they help us find our own Calcutta Sort of similar to uh, Beekner's phrase, the place where God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's greatest hunger or deepest hunger um, meet. I'm curious if that's been true in your own life as you think about your own sense of call and your own development of your sense of call. Sometimes that's fluid. I get that part. But wondering if your crises or your grievings have helped shape your call? And if if not, are there other things that you feel like have shaped your call? That's really, really, really interesting, actually. That's so interesting. Okay. So the reason, so last, last year, like I said, we um, moved here. And then one week later, my dad, uh, my father passed away really uh, suddenly. And then I had a miscarriage and then I was pregnant again. And we had a second trimester miscarriage. So we had two miscarriages in a year. So I still feel like that grief is really, uh, it's new. I mean, it's over a year old with my dad, but it still feels um, like it's pretty fresh. And so I don't think that I have walked, I, my um, friend, he's a priest, Father Perry, he would say wisdom is the space between an event and a response to it. So meaning when, if you leave time to kind of process an event, before you pronounce on it or respond to it or that there that that's the space where wisdom can grow in some sense I feel like I'm in that processing space of figuring that out for sure I do think I do think and I don't know where I don't know what this is going to mean for my long-term calling but um in the midst of grief beauty has become so much more important to me and mystery 
So I've been drawn to the arts in a way that I just never, ever have before. I mean, I've, I'm very arty and I've always loved the arts. So uh, it's not that I've not been drawn to the arts. So in a uh, more kind of um, hungry, I'm just, I'm, so I'm reading, a t- I've written some poetry and I'm reading a ton of poetry and I'm just, uh, I read now primarily for beauty more than information. So Annie Dillard has been just a lifeline for me in the last year. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's not always been like, then there's other times where I just run into distraction and numb out. And, but, um, but when I'm actually kind of doing the work of grieving, I find that I'm, I'm really drawn to um, the beauty of words and the beauty of nature in a way I haven't seen before. I will say it's interesting that you, when I look back on my life, so I'm kind of in the middle of this grief, but when I look back, I can see how other griefs have shaped calling. So for writing, for instance, my, that really began when our campus group with university was being, we were being kicked off campus at Vanderbilt, not just us alone. It was 14 religious organizations were kicked off campus for for asking our key leaders to affirm our belief and purpose statement. They wouldn't allow that at Vanderbilt. They changed the rules to not allow that. So it was in the middle of, it was such a hard year. It was such a hard year. And it was this cauldron of kind of conflict and stress and misunderstanding and poor communication. And everyone in the university level sort of confused about what this policy actually meant. National media came in and we at first really wanted to avoid any kind of national media, really, really almost through the whole thing. We avoided most national media uh, and wanted to keep this conflict at sort of a local level. But kind of through that experience, we realized we need to be telling our story, even if it's only to our kind of constituency, the people praying for and supporting this ministry. And so out of that, we started writing a lot about what was happening, started a staff blog. But then I also wrote two or three pieces, I can't remember, for the campus newspaper that ended up getting a wide, wide response, even far beyond our campus and our newspaper. Making a case for why pluralism matters, why it matters that we really do honor, like truly that we embrace religious liberty, but also really honor true ideological diversity on the university campus. So it was really because of that crisis on campus that I discovered writing and how much I loved writing. It wasn't, I mean, I was also at the exact same time writing poetry, which is a really different kind of writing, um, obviously. (laughs) Sort of the newsy and cultural stuff. And, and, And that really just came out of, I was taking a poetry class and it was a joy. So I don't, I think sometimes grief can lead us to our calling. I think sometimes joy can lead us to our calling. I think calling to the pastorate, the ministry and being ordained was much more sort of a path of joy of finding the church to be a place of joy. Although it was a place of joy, I think uh, in a time where there was a lot of grief in other areas of my life that kind of brought me into the church, but that was a place of joy in a season of, of grief in my life. So, yeah, I mean, part of the reason I became a priest actually is um, a crisis that a good friend of mine was going through 
And she reached out to me in the midst of that. It was kind of through that experience, there's a lot more details that I could tell, but it would be a long story, that I kind of discovered that maybe I'm called to be in parish ministry, to be a priest in the church. So uh, that was somebody else's grief, not really mine. But um, I think it's all part of us though, right? Is even if it doesn't, even if it's not a one-to-one in the sense of I had cancer and that made me decide to become a doctor, this kind of like clear suffering equals. I think that the way that I'm a pastor is different because of grief that I've walked through. Of course. And the way that I interact with women who, for instance, have lost children is really different because now I have been changed by that. I'm a different person because we have a baby whose ashes are interred in our, in our church, um, in our columbarium. So I, I feel like a different per. I really do feel like a different person than I was four years ago in so many ways. And it's largely grief that has shaped that. And so even if it doesn't equal a different vocation, I think it allows you to inhabit your vocation differently. I approach writing so differently than I used to largely because of grief that I've walked mm-hmm. through. Yeah. I think it just kind of changes your voice in a lot of ways. Yeah. So keeping on the topic of calling, vocation, I'm wondering about women in particular, if there's something unique about the way in which women wrestle with the issue of calling. I recently finished an eight-week elective class on Sunday mornings for working women and the majority of them are married and have children. And I was struck by a number of things. I'll mention two. First, their theology of work was horrible. Um, (laughs) So I'm really glad that we worked through every good endeavor and really worked hard on developing a good theology of work. Uh, The second, women in the class who have children are really struggling They love their jobs for the most part, but they have mommy guilt like crazy. And the majority of them have husbands who are quite content to have them not only work full time, but also carry the full weight of domestic responsibilities, if you will, including schlepping the kids to practices and games and cooking and cleaning and all of this. And so they're wiped out. And when I mentioned Sabbath as a way to <laughs> help them keep work in proper perspective. They looked at me like I had three heads. All kinds of stuff that we could talk about there, but I wanted to mention this just as a backdrop for some of these questions and to sort of help us think about, you know, how is it that women may uniquely wrestle with this idea of calling? Mm-hmm and what calling looks like and what it means to even be called to something. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because I think that women are in such different contexts right now. I mean, there are places that still really discourage women from working outside the home. I mean, in in like kind of the evangelical world, there's also other places. I mean, I've never in the current context that I am now as a Anglican priest have never felt discouraged from working outside my home. I don't want to say I've never I think I have a couple of times from a couple of people, but usually that's not my case. That's not the case. So so it's hard to speak about because there's. I just think that this just varies so much region to region and place to place and what sort of particular subculture you're in. But one thing that I've found, I mean, this thing you hit on with guilt, 
I just think it is huge, huge, huge. I mean, so this is interesting because I work part-time. I, I have a, my child, my youngest is not in kindergarten yet. I was home with her two days a week this last year and then worked uh, the other days. And I love it theoretically. I, in, in some way, it, theoretically, it's the best of both worlds. In reality, it just means that you feel like you're never where you're at. That when you're with your kid, you're thinking about work. And when you're at work, you're thinking about your kid and you're, all of it bleeds into each other. And you have your cell phone and you're at the park and you get a email and you have this like crisis of whether you respond right then or whether you should wait and respond when you're not in the park with your kid. And it's just sort of constant, constant uncertainty about the best way to use your time at that moment and always feeling pulled between different things. So the moms I know actually, in some ways, the moms I know who are most worn out are the ones who try to do work part-time and be home part-time because neither of them are part-time. So you end up doing both of them, right? And then usually don't have enough child care. So you're always sort of juggling. But I still think it's, I mean, I'm really grateful I got to do that. And with that is an opportunity that you can work part-time and be home part-time. It is awesome in ways, but it's super hard in other ways. And so here's what I'm saying. is I was talking to a woman who's been kind of a mentor. She's my, actually her official title, she's my job coach. She is also a priest. And so she's kind of mentored me. And, and what she said is she said, you know, because I was talking about guilt, I was feeling about the mom stuff. And she said, if you were a stay-at-home mom, you would feel guilt because you weren't working or contributing or bringing an income. If you were a full-time mom, you would feel guilt because you wouldn't see your kids enough. If you And, and now as a part-time mom, you're feeling guilt because you feel like, well, my guilt was about, I feel like I'm never doing my job well and I feel like I'm never at doing the mom thing well and I'm just doing both poorly at all times. Like I'm just failing at two <laughs> things instead of one. And I remember thinking at the time like, I don't think that I would feel guilt if I was a stay-at-home mom. Like that's really kind of rewarded in Christian subculture. And then in the last month, I was meeting with a woman who was sitting on my couch crying because she's a stay-at-home mom and feels guilty that she's not contributing more to the family (laughs) income, that she's not doing more outside the home, that she's not. And then I have talked to a mom who is full-time who feels guilty. And I, It was like, after that conversation, I just started noticing, oh my gosh, all of these women, in spite of all their choices, they're all making different choices and they're all feeling guilty about them. And I thought, this is fascinating because it points that it's not, you're not going to be free of guilt by sort of making the quote unquote right choice. I I think, and and this is a difference because my husband doesn't deal with this at all. I don't think I've, I don't, I've never... I don't want to say no man deals with this, but I do, I think that men feel far less daddy guilt than moms feel mommy guilt. I don't entirely know what that's all about. I think some of that is, you know, social pressure. I think women have just, uh, moms in particular, I think just have so much societal pressure to kind of be perfect and all things to all people. And um, my husband and I have joked about, he says, you know, the, the standard for men in our country is so low that if you, you know, don't leave your wife, 
<laughs> stay with your wife. Don't beat your kids. Read them a bedtime story and tuck them in at night. You're like dad of the year. That's like amazing. <laughs> like you're such an incredible father. You actually like read your kids a bedtime story where moms are all are doing all of that and more. And it's, oh yeah, that's just the norm, right? That's expected. Yeah, I don't think that can su- possibly sum up all of it. I mean, I just think we can't blame society entirely for our guilt. I think, I don't know what, I don't know where that comes from in women. I mean, some of it I think is, um, we tend to be, we're so relationally um, wired that we just want to, uh, we, we desperately want to be the mother that our kids need. And I don't know. I think um, none of us are, not because we're working moms or not, but because we're sinners, right? Because we just <laughs> are not going to be relationally enough for everybody in our lives. And we're not meant to be. So I, some of it society, I don't know. Some of it might be internal, but I do know I work with women a lot as a parish priest and they all feel guilty. And I find that interesting. I will say, I think that the, in general, the having a terrible theology of work is not uh, that's uh, men and women both have a terrible theology of work and <laughs> like i've i've seen that in both male spaces and female spaces but i think there's far less teaching on work for women and there's just far less conversations happening around it and so that's it's a huge huge need i mean it's partly why i worked for women in the academy and professions is it's just a huge need to help women understand their unique gifts and calling whatever that is you know even if that is staying home or staying home for a season right well so how does writing fit into your sense of call and what's mm-hmm. what spurs you to write and yeah my last the thought in there too was what do you hope for long-term with regards to your writing, the effects and the results and your own experience of that? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So in terms of how it fits into my calling, I really, I don't have the story like Madeline Lingle where she wanted to be a writer since the time she was like five years old. That's not my story. I mean, yeah. I really wanted to do ministry and that was my calling. And that that was the thing that, you know, when I was 13 or 14, I wanted to do ministry. I wanted to be in, in the church in some way. And I didn't know what that look would look like. And that's a whole other story because I wasn't in a place that ordained women. So I thought maybe I would be overseas or I didn't know, but I wasn't thinking, and I'll be a writer and I'll have a book out, but I always loved writing. I did enjoy it. I remember writing poems for my sister when I was little. I would write her poems as gifts. And then I had this epic story on my mom's word processor. It was like the original computer, you know, right? Yeah, it was like, yeah. You had to like, I don't know. It was so, there was no internet on it, right? And it was just a blue screen um, <laughs> that you <laughs> that you wrote on and it was giant it was enormous so but I had this long story about a, a little girl on the that was a pioneer girl in Texas in like the 18 you know early 1800s and so yeah, I was really into sort of epic stories and they always involved girls or women 
in places that were really hard. So there was, I had this crazy, like 75 page story about a woman who lived on the Amazon. And then this (laughs) other story about this little girl who was a pioneer. And yeah, so I think I just, I loved writing and I loved, you know, English was always my favorite um, subject in school. So I wanted to do ministry and I loved people. So the writing thing came late, you know, I, I loved writing. I, I discovered in sort of through taking a seminary class and then, and then taking, going to seminary that I loved, loved the study of theology and I loved writing in that context. And so enjoyed that. And then kind of just kept writing. I mean, I, I took this poetry class for fun and then I started sort of writing through everything that happened at Vanderbilt, as I said, but then the huge turning point in my life was when I went to a GFM graduate faculty ministries gathering. And I met Marsha Bosher. I'm saying this because you know her. I don't know if the listeners know her, but she's the former editor of The Well. And we got in a conversation about the Sabbath. And I mentioned that uh, Sabbath keeping changed my life. It did. It was not something I did growing up. And it was something that my husband and I's marriage was really, really struggling when we were in seminary. And I read Keeping the Sabbath Holy and we started keeping the Sabbath and it was transformational. And I think it saved our marriage. So we were talking about this and she asked me to write something on it. And I did. And she called me, I think, and said, you're, you are a really good writer. You should write, you need to write more. And my friend, Nathan, who's a great writer, had told me that before had encouraged me to write more, but I kind of just thought he was being nice. And so it was this, it was Marcia saying that who had no reason to be nice to me because she didn't even know me very well at the time. And then she just kept asking me to write and asked me to write. And I would kind of say, sure, sure, sure. Then I wouldn't do it. And then she would call me three months later and say, when are you going to write for us? And uh, so a loving way kind of, you know, was the persistent widow uh, asking me to write. And so, so then I, I did, I started writing more consistently for her. And then that really changed my life. I mean, one of my pieces went really viral and Andy Crouch picked it up and pushed it out. And I mean, he didn't push it out. He just tweeted it and it went really viral. And then, so from that, he asked me to write invited me to write for CT. And then I started writing for CT and started writing for other outlets. And then I love writing. I do. And so it just started taking up more and more of my time to the point where, you know, I, I wrote a book and that came out, Liturgy of the Ordinary came out and it's done really well, uh, had a much farther reach than any of us expected. And so at this point, I mean, writing is a, is a huge part of what I do <laughs> to the extent that it's sort of eating up the other parts. So we're having to <laughs> rethink. And so I'm having to rethink what ministry looks like, how much time I should give to writing, how much time I should give to parish work, because it just surely in terms of time, I can't, I can't do them all at the same time. And writing, the deeper I've gotten into writing, the more white space I need, the more kind of creative, creative space that I need. And one thing I found is if you, I think if you want to really think creatively and be a good writer, you can't try to maximize every minute of your day. You just can't 
there has to be some sort of wasted brain space for your brain to come up with the kind of new ways of seeing things. Mm -hmm. So I think creative types need more just margin, white space than other types. And at one point I was very resistant to saying that because it sounds like, I'm sorry, I can't work today. I have to be creative, right? It just (laughs) seems so precious and privileged and it is in, in many ways, but at the same time, I just think it's true. I mean, I just think that creating requires space and requires what looks like it looks like nothing's happening, but actually that's kind of when your greatest sort of imaginative energy is, is at work. So yeah. So now writing is a big part of my life and you asked why I do it. I mean, part of why I do it is helps me make sense of my life. I feel Mm -hmm. like I need this to narrate my own experience in the world to try to figure out what I believe often and what it means to follow Jesus. There were certainly times when I was writing the book where there were words on the page that I didn't know I knew. You know, I think um, you, you don't write what you know, always you write what you are learning. I mean, I'm very much learning through the process of writing. And mm-hmm. so it's the way I learn. I learn by writing and I love learning. And so I And I mean, it's the way I learned about, you know, whatever, the early church or about theology of baptism, but it's also the way I learned, like, how to be Tish on this planet, you know, right? It's how I live my life. So, and then in turn, I think you said, what's my goal? That's that's a hard thing with writing because there's all these external goals, right? Right. Um, Like, you know. I would love to write another book. I would love for that book to do well. I'd love to write another several books. But I I think at the end of the day, like that can be really self-defeating to have external goals like that because you're just so not in control of a lot of that. I mean, I'm in control of if I write another book or not at this point, but, but I'm not in control of sort of how it does. Honestly, this, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because it sounds so overly pious (laughs) and I don't mean it to be but like at this point I just want to make something really beautiful Mm -hmm. that that glorifies God it's beauty that draws me to writing like when I sit down on a Sunday afternoon to read it's beauty that gets me there and so I just want to write things that are true Mm -hmm. deeply nourishingly true and that are beautiful that is all I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and I think Tish, that's why people love your book is because I don't know if they would articulate it that way, but I think that's what happens when they're reading is that there's, there are people that can write information well. And then there are people that you just, enjoy reading because they have a gift with words it's it's almost there's an aesthetic to it I don't know exactly how to how to phrase it but there are a handful of those folks that I love to read because I think not only is the content good but the but the words are beautiful and the way they write them is beautiful and and you just sort of you're swept up in the is 
isn't this lovely as as it's written and i think that's i think that's one of the things about your book that's that's great i think the other thing is just people love your honesty and your willingness to just sort of talk about losing your keys and fighting with your husband <laughs> so <laughs> you know some of those sorts of things but in a way that helps us think a little bit more deeply about about those experiences and how to how to think about them how to connect them with our overall lives and so yeah and I think you know I think beauty is really really part of truth in the sense that I mean I I read books for their information for their I I read books for information but I it actually bothers me sometimes when like the great kind of works of theology are just painful to read or just feel like you're just having to get through them. And then there's, you know, I mentioned Annie Dillard earlier and she's one of my favorites, but just tonight, actually, before we were talking, I was reading Teaching Stone to Talk, which is my favorite book of hers. I was reading one of the chapters about the Galapagos Islands. And then, and then I was reading another chapter she does about an expedition to the North Pole. And I was thinking about how I felt like her drawing me into the beauty of this was drawing, there's truth in what she writes as well. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think we can tend to think of truth as this kind of rational information we receive and then beauty as this kind of other emotional experience. Mm -hmm. But I really feel like when someone tells me something about God or something about the world, like the Galapagos Islands, and they do it beautifully and they do it truthfully, that the truth of it is is more true because it's beautiful, mm-hmm. and the beauty of it is more beautiful because it's true. Right. Um, in fact, when I have seen really beautiful writing, because there's folks I think that write really beautiful prose who are peddling some untruth mm-hmm. and so, um, some, I think, deep untruth about who God is and what the world is like, and it's um it's less beautiful. I think it's less beautiful. I think it's just uh, more like um, it's too easy. Right. And so it's, it's just the difference of like a cake made with high fructose corn syrup versus like the amazing cake that I had today that was made of like cream and sugar and almonds. And it was amazing. The realness of the food was part of like the glory of, of this, I feel like. And so I don't know what I'm trying to say here other than I think that beautiful words are not just good and important because aesthetically they're pleasing, but I think there's something about reality that we get to through the beauty of words Mm -hmm. that we don't get to quite as much without that. And so poetry is a great example of this. You don't read poetry to get information, right? but you get truth from it you get a lot of truth from it. And when I read Scott Cairns poetry, I believe the gospel more and, but it's because it's so beautiful. Right. Right. And so there's more than just aesthetics at play here. There's saying things in a way that's compelling is actually more true to reality because God is the God is reality. He's the heart of reality and he is true and he's beautiful and he's the word and he's good with words. (laughs) (laughs) He's good with beauty. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Last question. I'm curious if you have some 
practices or some resources for spiritual formation for busy graduate faculty women, Mm -hmm. uh, things that might be particularly encouraging, helpful, accessible for thoughtful women with precious little free time. Mm -hmm. I think they would enjoy hearing what your practices, your resources, what your suggestions for them would be. Yeah, I wrote a whole book on that. That's right, that's right. <laughs> my book is very, very focused on exactly what you just said. And it very much comes out of, I mean, you know, I wrote it on the tail end of grad students for eight years. So uh, read my book. That will be my first suggestion. Uh, but that's not just self-promotion. You can check it out from the library. I actually do think it's written exactly for the person you are describing. So uh, two things I think have been particularly helpful. Well, I'll say three things. Three things have been particularly helpful. One, I, I said two because one is so obvious, and I decided, no, I need to say it even though it's obvious. Um, but go to church. I mean, that it, you need to go to church. <laughs> like, you will not. I think Calvin quoted an ancient father, I can't remember, Cyprian, quoted Cyprian saying, you cannot, no one can have. God is father without the church as their mother. And I think it's right. And so, yeah, I, I think that irreducibly when we are busy, especially we need our community to carry us, go to church, hear the scriptures, worship with your community. So I, in terms of other spiritual practices that have been particularly helpful for me, examine, which I learned the best article that I've ever read on examine, I read at the well. And I I think it was by Anne Boyd, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and it was her practice of examining journaling and journaling in the round. Yes. Yes. Was that's, that Anne? That's Anne. Yep. It was so good and so helpful. So I would highly recommend folks going to the well and looking at that. I also just as the reason that examine has been important to me is because if, first of all, you can do it on the fly. You can do it in the car, right? Just turn off the radio and ask the Lord. Like it's something, it takes such a short amount of time. In seasons of my life, particularly seasons of discernment, it helps me notice God working in my life in ways that I just would not notice without it. Mm-hmm. So good and bad, honestly. Like when I did, I did over Lent, I took and journaling in the round piece one year. And I, and I did that. I journaled in the round and I was noticing that every day my desolation was yelling at my children every day. And I didn't even notice that was such a huge pattern in my life until I started doing that through examine and then realizing, Oh, Because at the time, it just feels like I get mad, I react, I move on, I don't think about it. I get mad, I react, I get move on, I don't think about it. And then I went, oh no, this is like a pattern. This is a habit. This is something that is deeper than just the moment. Mm -hmm. So sure, I was mad at them at the moment because they were supposed to be napping and they decided to paint on the walls instead um or something (laughs) color on the walls how did a crayon get in there but when you realize yeah but this is happening this wasn't just that moment because this is really a pattern and then you go oh no I there I have to do some like serious emotional and spiritual work around this right and so 
it showed me ways I need to repent and not just, Oh, it was not good to get that mad. But like, Oh, why do I go to like, why do I keep going to anger and yelling? What is happening here? What is the, what is the grief that this is the underneath anger is, is grief and fear. So what is this unearthing? And so it kind of helped, it helped me to examine that, but it also good things, right? Like a consistently, well, this is one thing I volunteered for my daughter's classroom and I really did it out of like guilt, right? Out of a sense of like <laughs> wanting to do the right mom thing. And then I just noticed that it was very consistently one of the highest parts. It was a place of consolation for me. It was just mm. total joy. And I realized I love helping kids learn to read not even just my kid. Like this is, this isn't guilt. This is just, (laughs) I just like helping people read. And so realizing, okay, this is like, pay attention to this. You know, this is actually part of, I, when I was discovering I was a writer, it's like, pay attention. You, you really love words. You really get excited about teaching people about adverbs. (laughs) Not everyone loves adverbs as much as I love adverbs, you know, so it helps me notice how God is working. The other thing is Compline, praying Compline at night. I do it almost every night and it's the book of common prayer. Uh, I know a lot of folks don't use it. If you want to find it online, you can just go to BCP online, just Google BCP online or book of common prayer online and it will come up and you can go to the click on daily prayer and then click on Compline. Or if you have a, a book of common prayer, you can look at it for the Compline service. I love it because it's really short. And so, you, and I just, you can do it right before you go to sleep at night and it takes less than about five minutes. If you do it long enough, you just memorize it. And so those prayers have become incredibly important to me last year with all the crises and trauma of last year. C.S. Lewis said, I never realized, no one ever told me how much grief feels like fear. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when people go through grief, seasons of grief, they feel more fear. And so turning my nights and the vulnerability over th- of that over to God, everything you've done from the day, everything you've not done, like being able to release all of that to the Lord before you go to sleep has become really, really important to me. So I love Compline. Yeah. Do you do that by yourself? Or do you do it with Jonathan? I did it by myself. Okay. I, I did it by myself for the for like the first year that I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had a conversation about it and decided to do it together more. So we do it together a lot now. So I probably do it by myself maybe like once a week. And we do it together probably three times a week. And no, maybe I do it probably twice by myself a week, three times with him, and then two times a week. I just don't do it. <laughs> so that's the other thing is what I say, these spiritual practices I do, I'm very, like, take away any sense of perfectionism about that. So it's certainly not every night. I really don't do anything every night. If you read my book, you'll know I don't even brush my teeth every night. So I, yeah, if I do something kind of five out of seven days, I'm, I'm, perfectly happy with that so yeah yeah that's great well thank you thanks thanks for taking the time out of your busy life that is full of mommy guilt <laughs> or work <laughs> guilt or whatever to talk with us and I'm getting better I'm working on it I really am I'm getting better at the guilt. that's great and I mean it's a real treat to 
chat with you anytime, but to be able to chat with you uh, particularly as we think about the audience at the well and their particular situation in life and that you know who they are and and you've written for them and you uh, continue to have uh, things to say to to our audience that are helpful and encouraging and affirming of them. So it's been great to chat with you and I really appreciate it. So I love uh, you guys so much. And of course, anytime you want to write for us, doors open, mailboxes open, whatever metaphor we, we use, but yeah, but, and we look forward to seeing um, what is going to come next from you, whether it's a <laughs> book of poetry or a book about something else. So, yeah. Okay. I don't know yet. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to that too. That's great. You have been listening to Wappy Hour. WAP, Women in the Academy and Professions, is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Thanks for joining our conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.introvarsity.org.